My name is John. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace. I'm so excited to be together with each of you today. Uh, any t- 21 days. Good job. Who's up for another 21? Any takers? I asked my kids that last night and they ran out of the room and said, no! I, 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 I do hope that you grasp I do hope that you grasp the gravity of this moment. This is a big deal. This is a big deal. We just finished this 21 days of pursuing Jesus together collectively. I hope you grasp the the gravity of this moment in your life, but in the life of our church. This is a big moment. This is a big deal for us, and and I just want to commend I want to commend you all for your time and your efforts and your commitment and your heart in this. A lot of us, this was the first time we've done anything like this. And so I, I do want to begin just by commending you, saying, hey, well done. Even if it was more difficult than you expected, if it didn't go the way you expected, even if you cheated a little bit, this was still a big deal, a lot A lot of great is coming out of this. A lot of great happened in this moment simply for the fact that we collectively as a body went 21 days where we prayed together at the same times, focusing our attention and our heart on Jesus. That's a big deal. So I'm proud to be a part of this church. I'm I'm proud that we spent these last 21 days together pursuing Jesus. And, and I just wanted to begin today by acknowledging that, uh, by acknowledging how big of a deal this really is that we did this together. And tonight we're going to cap it off with worship and celebration. The meal's going to be okay. We're going to worship and we're going to celebrate who God is and what he has done for us. And so I hope you join us for that tonight at 5 p.m. Um, it's, going to be, uh, it's going to be a great time together. Uh, can I pray for us uh, before we begin? And that doesn't count as part of my time. So if you started keeping track of time, start over after I'm done praying. All right, God, I thank you so much for who you are. I pray that you would open our ears to hear what you have to say. Open our eyes to see your truths from your word. Open our hearts to grab a hold of what you have for us this morning. It's your name we pray. Amen and amen. Have you ever met a celebrity? It's kind of jarring, right? When you, you see this person that you've seen on this other level, it's kind of jarring. It's, it's this, you don't really know what to do. There are emotions that kind of arise within you. You're like, oh my goodness. You know, you start to do that. It's really fun to watch other people kind of just like freak out about seeing a celebrity, right? You can look on YouTube and find videos of people meeting celebrities uh, that they just freak out. They start crying for no reason. They don't really understand why they, they are. Maybe, maybe that's not you. Maybe you've never met a celebrity and you don't really know what, what that is, is like, but I bet you've experienced something similar to, to this scenario where you meet with somebody that you know, but you haven't seen in a long time. 
And it's like some, for some, some reason when you get into their presence, you're near them and all of the sudden the full weight of who they are and what they mean to you just hits you. And for some unknown reason, you get emotional. Right, you start crying. You 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 get really emotional when I, when we moved when I moved here. My wife and kids stayed in Michigan for a few months, and um, I, so I was here and they were there. And when I would go back, I went back to visit a few times, and it never made it more than a couple weeks at a time. I think there was one time they all had COVID, and so I was like, I'm probably not going to come visit you, but I love you. Ah, you know, it was one of those things. Um, and so it was, it was probably a month between at that time, but I remember when I walked in and I saw the, the emotion that I felt, just the, the excitement and the, the love that I had for them just welled up within me. Sometimes, sometimes just simply being near somebody, being in the presence of somebody causes emotion to well up in, within you, and it causes this affection to just pour out of you. Have you ever experienced that? Do you know what I'm, what I'm talking about? Honestly, that is the essence of, of what true worship is, is when you feel the emotion and the affection well up within you because of this person in whose presence you are standing because of what he has done for you and because of who he is and what he means to you. That is what worship is. And I I know I mentioned last week that this week we'd begin a new series talking about the I am statements of Jesus. And I promise we'll start that next week. I'm not going to push it off another week. But all week I felt, I felt God telling me we need to talk about one more aspect of pursuing Jesus, and that's worship. One aspect. We talked about prayer. We talked about about reading Scripture, but but this morning we're going to talk about worship and what that really, really looks like. And here in Luke chapter 7, which we read earlier, we have a most interesting story. This is one of the most fascinating, one of my favorite stories in the Bible. We have this Pharisee named Simon who invites Jesus into his home. Now remember, the Pharisees were were the religious leaders of of the day. They were the ones who studied and knew the law. They they were concerned with following the letter of the law to a T. The Pharisees also did not like Jesus. They were out to get Jesus. They saw him as a disruptor. They saw him as someone who was trying to break their traditions and was trying to destroy their faith and their livelihood. They did not like Jesus. He seemed to be this great prophet, but for some unknown reason, he ate with sinners, and he was a friend with the tax collectors. He, was, he associated himself with the worst of the worst, and so they didn't really know what to do with this guy. The Bible doesn't give us reasoning behind Simon's invitation for Jesus to come eat with him in his his own home, and so I don't want to make assumptions, but I cannot help but wonder why. What was his intention? What was his 
thought process? Why did he invite Jesus into his home? Was it, was it that he was trying to catch Jesus with something? Because that's what the Pharisees often did. They tried to catch him in something that they could use to accuse him. Was that the reason? Or was he simply someone who was interested in this man who undoubtedly was the talk of town because he was a man who was powerful? Since Simon was a well-to-do gentleman, he had resources and influence to invite Jesus into his home for dinner, and we can tell that, that it was more than just a one-on-one interaction. It says at the end of this passage that all who were around the table, so there was more like a banquet, more like a feast. There were a group of people around this table. We don't really know who was there other than Simon and Jesus are the only names that are, are mentioned So we don't know who was around this table. My guess, it was probably some other Pharisees, maybe some of Jesus' disciples, but there was a group of people there. But what follows is one of the most interesting, one of the most interesting stories in in the Bible, and I I believe it is one of the the clearest pictures of what worship should be in, in the Bible. And we read it a moment ago, but, but if you will allow me a, a small amount of artistic liberty, this morning I, I want to paint a picture of this evening's dinner. I want to paint a picture of this story of what, what was happening, what did happen, what occurred in this moment. Simon undoubtedly was at the head of the table because, after all, it was his house, and he was someone special. He was someone important, so he was at the head of the table, and Jesus was maybe at the other end of the table because he was the honored guest. He was the special guest, so he was probably at the other end of the table, and there were others who were sitting in between them, all there reclining at the table for this feast. In that time, they didn't sit upright at the table like we do when we eat. They reclined. They would sit feet toward the door, head toward the table. They would lean on their left elbow, leaving their right hand available to feed themselves. And so they were all leaning at the table, and they were reclining, eating, engaging in conversation, and in walks this woman. And all we know about her is that she was a woman of the city, and she was a sinner. Apparently, it wasn't just that she was a sinner, but that is what she was known for, sin. The word here for sinner is, is one who is devoted to sin, someone who is, who is preeminently sinful, someone who was especially wicked. Charles Spurgeon said that the wording of this is that, she, that, that sinning was her livelihood. She was a pro. All commentators pretty much agree on the fact, even though it doesn't say it, all commentators agree on the fact that she was a prostitute and that's why she is known as a professional sinner. She is known for her sin. That is who she is. And it's interesting, knowing who she is, it's interesting that she was in this house for dinner. Not that anyone was in the house for dinner, because that was a fairly common thing, that if there was a dinner party, even if you weren't invited, you, it was common for you to go stand in the courtyard of the house and listen into the conversation if there was a great teacher there in this house. You would stand back and silently listen on to the conversation. So it's not interesting that anyone was in the house. 
house, but it is interesting that this lady who was known for her sin was allowed into the house of a Pharisee. That is interesting to me. How did she get in? Did she sneak in? Had she been there before? Was she so beautiful that people didn't even pay any attention to her? We don't really know how she got in, but we know why she went there. It says that she, when she heard that Jesus was there, she grabbed her flask and she went to him. She was there to, to see Jesus. She went to see this man that she had probably heard about. Had she already met him? Had she uh, had her first interaction already? Or was this her first interaction with this Jesus? Had she been nearby when he was preaching and was amazed at what he said? Because they often said, who is this? He speaks as one with authority. If you put all of the stories of the Gospels together in chronological harmony, you'll see that just before this, just before this, Jesus issued the invitation for, come unto me, all who weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And then he goes on to say that I am gentle and lowly at heart, and you will find rest. Had she been nearby and heard that invitation? Had she already come to him and received that rest? And now she was back to, to see this man once again who had given the rest that she was looking for. Was she now there to respond to that invitation? Had she heard that he was, he was a great healer who went and he healed people who were sick and people who were, who were injured and people who had problems, he healed everywhere he went. And was she there knowing that she had these deep things within her that were broken that needed to be healed and she went to the one hoping that he could heal her? Was she, had she just simply heard of his, his reputation that he was a friend of sinners like her? She went to meet this man in hopes, in hopes that she, he would see her and want to be her friend as well. Why? Why was she there? She went to see Jesus as she stood in the background, and we see the picture that, that they, were all, they were all standing, or they were all like, just leaning against this, this meal. They were, they were enjoying this, and she's standing up against the wall, right? And she's looking on as this thing happens. And she's looking on at this Jesus, this man who gives rest and forgiveness, this man who heals the sick and raises the dead, this man who welcomes sinners and, and changes their lives. And she's looking on and she's listening to this whole thing. And at some point she starts crying. And I don't mean a gentle tear streaming down her cheeks, but she begins to, as the Bible says, weep. And unable to contain herself anymore, she falls at his feet and begins to wash his feet with her tears. And then she takes her hair and she loosens it and she dries his feet. She dries the, the tears off of his feet with her hair. And I know we read that and we're like, mm, gross. But to them, it was more than gross. To them, this was an act of disgrace upon herself. 
that she would dare loosen her hair and wipe it on his feet. But to her, this was an act of humility. She was humbling herself before this man. This man that she had heard of, maybe this man that she had met, she was humbling herself to dry his feet, and she's overcome with emotion and affection toward him after she washed his feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. She began to kiss, kiss his feet. And then she took this bottle of ointment that she brought in, this oil that she brought in, and she broke it. And she poured it on his feet to anoint his feet. And it's at this point that Simon the Pharisee is beginning to despise not her for interrupting, but he begins to despise Jesus for allowing her to do this. Hear that, religious people. Do you despise Jesus for allowing sinners to come near him? Do you despise Jesus for moving in the lives of sinners? Simon says to himself, if this man were a prophet, if he were a prophet, if he were who he says he was, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she's a sinner. See, Simon here probably would have been as Isaiah described the religious leaders in Isaiah 65 when he said that they looked at sinners and said to them, keep to yourself, do not come near me for I am too holy for you. Simon would have said that to her and he assumed that any self-respecting rabbi, any self-respecting teacher, any self-respecting prophet would have said the same. But notice, Simon thought to himself, he's, he's not a prophet. And Jesus answered his thoughts. I think the irony of that is very strong. But Jesus' answer takes us from this story for a moment to a philosophical discussion around the table and undoubtedly, this is what everyone at this meal was expecting from this, this dinner discussion. And Jesus says, hey, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them could pay, and the lender decides to cancel the debt. So which of them do you think will love the lender more? And Simon, knowing that he has the answer because he's very smart, says... Well, I suppose the one, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. Jesus says, you've judged rightly. And then Jesus finally, for the first time, looks at this woman, looks her in her eyes, but is still speaking to Simon. And he says, do you see this woman? Of course he sees this woman. Obviously, he sees this woman. His seeing this woman is the entire reason for this conversation. He sees this woman. But now, I believe Simon is finally starting to understand that Jesus knew what he thought to himself. Because as Jesus walked Simon back through the events of the evening, he was unpacking a much deeper truth to this philosophical question. Than Simon even grasped initially. 
And as Jesus walks back through the events of the evening, he begins to point out three separate differences between this woman and Simon. And these three separate differences are huge. These three separate differences are really the difference that it, that it really takes to have this true worship. And so in recounting the events of this evening, there are these three differences. The first is a different view of self, a different view of self. See, Simon, the Pharisee, the religious leader, he was significant, He was significant to the city. He was significant to the culture. He was somebody to be respected. He was someone who was holy. He was somebody whose entire job was to study and practice the law. He was somebody whose entire livelihood was to be good at practicing the law. He saw his entire job as being moral. He was a moral authority. He saw himself as a good man. He saw himself as living a moral life, and therefore, he needed no forgiveness. He had no debts. But this woman, she was a sinner. Everybody in the room knew it. And she, more than anybody else, She wasn't under any delusion that she, that she wasn't a sinner. She had no false ideas that she belonged near Jesus. She knew that she was a sinner. She didn't need their judgment to feel the shame. She felt that all on her own. She didn't need their judgment to feel the guilt from her sin. She felt that all on her own. She didn't need them to look down on her. And here's the difference between these two views of self. She knew that she desperately needed forgiveness. She knew that she desperately needed a savior, and he didn't. See, this philosophical question just kind of hits different here now, right? See, neither of the debtors in the story that Jesus told could pay. It didn't matter if you were the one who owed 50 denarii or 500 or 5,000 or 50,000. It didn't matter where you were because neither of them could pay their debt. So they were both doomed to the same end, the same punishment. They were both going to prison because they could not pay their debts. And they were both forgiven of their debts. It doesn't matter it doesn't matter how big, of their, their, how big their debt was. They both knew it. They couldn't pay. They both had the same end in store, and they were both forgiven. See, the whole point of, of what Jesus was saying with this story is that once you realize that your only hope is in being forgiven, you will see yourself as having being, been forgiven of more than you can actually handle. It's not a matter of which one really loved Jesus more. The answer was they both should have loved him because they both had exceeded what they could handle and their debts were forgiven. See, we have somehow managed to create and categorize acceptable sins. 
right? There are some that are not acceptable. I, I get that. You can't kill anybody. You can't sleep around. I know that. You can't lie unless it's just a little lie that doesn't really hurt anybody. And it's okay. You can, you can eat as much as you want. Gluttony is an acceptable sin. That's okay. You can talk trash about anybody behind their back as long as long as you phrase it as a prayer request. We need to pray for her. Let me tell you what she's doing. Gossip is an acceptable sin, right? And because we categorize sin, we have begun to categorize sinners. This one's not that bad, right? This one's, this one's not, now that one, whew, let's stay away from that one. So Jesus is really trying to help Simon understand that even the one who only owed 50 denarii was just as desperate and just as much of a need of forgiveness as the one who owed 500. That was the main point of what Jesus was trying to say. See, we have to realize that whether we are the lesser sinner or the greater sinner, our only hope is Jesus. Our only chance is his forgiveness. See, that's the big difference between the way they saw themselves. He didn't need Jesus because he wasn't that bad, but she knew that she needed Jesus because she was that bad and worse. And because they viewed themselves differently, it affected how they viewed Jesus. So there was a difference in their view of self. There was a difference in their view of, of Jesus. To Simon, Jesus was a rabbi. He was a teacher. He was a good teacher. He, he spoke with authority. He performed miracles. Now, Simon wasn't real sure how or, or what to do with the miracles, but really, honestly, in the history of Israel, someone performing miracles wasn't that uncommon. It wasn't that big of a deal. They, they, you know, Elijah, Elisha, you know, some of these in the Old Testament, we can see those, but Simon saw Jesus as this teacher who could challenge his mind because he spoke as one with authority. He saw him as, as one who could amaze him and impress him because he saw the miracles But to the woman, he, he wasn't a good teacher. He was the man who paid my debt. He was the one who looked into me. He was the one who looked into me and saw all of my sin and didn't despise me like everyone else did. He was the one who looked into me and saw all of my brokenness and didn't take advantage of me like everyone else did. He was the one who saw me in my filth and my disgust and still welcomed me in. This is who Jesus is. He wasn't a good teacher. He wasn't this powerful man. He was the one who took my debt. See, when you receive forgiveness of a debt, somebody still has to pay that debt, right? It doesn't just disappear. Somebody still pays it. It's just not you. See, either, 
either, either way, this debt costs someone. It costs, in this instance, the one who forgives. If you, if you wrong me, I can either make you pay, and I can make you assume the cost of that, of that and punish you, make you suffer for your actions, or I can choose to forgive, and in choosing to forgive, I can choose to take the, the cost of that hurt upon myself so that you don't have to, but the cost is still there, and it still has to be paid. Either way, it doesn't just disappear. We far too often forget the fact that our sins carry a cost, they carry a debt, they carry a weight, and that doesn't just disappear. Somebody had to pay that. Somebody had to take that cost upon themselves. When you repent and believe in Jesus, he doesn't just clean you. He takes the cost, the punishment, the payment for your sins upon himself so that you don't have to. This woman was very aware of this fact that this man was the one who not only, not only cleans people, but forgives sin by assuming the debt upon himself. And because they had different views of themselves and they had different views of Jesus, they had different responses to him. And remember, Jesus is looking into the eyes of this woman, and he's speaking to Simon still, and he points out the differences in the way they responded to him, the way they treated him in this evening. And he tells me, he says, I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she washed my feet with her tears, dried them with her hair. They walked in, in, in sandals on dusty roads, and so when you would go into someone's home, they would either have their servants wash your feet, or they would at the very least give you water to wash your own feet before you came in. But Simon had done neither of these. Maybe this, this woman here noticed that Jesus' feet had not been washed And maybe she knew the disgrace. Maybe she had felt that disgrace of not being given the common decency to clean my own feet when I go into someone's home. Maybe she just simply loved him so deeply that looking at this man, she had no choice but to weep. She had no choice but to weep, not just a little bit of tears, but enough to wash his feet. That's a lot of tears. And then she took her hair and she humbled herself by drying his hair or drying his feet with her hair. Simon was, was too good or too busy to wash the Savior's feet, but she knew that it was a privilege just to be near his feet. This is the difference in response to Jesus. 
That not only that, he says that you didn't greet me with the customary greeting, a kiss on the cheek. You didn't see me as an equal when we walked in, right? I, you didn't even see me as someone who was on your level. You saw me as someone beneath you. You didn't even greet me with a, a kiss on the cheek as you would some random person that is equal to you. But she has not stopped kissing my feet. She has not stopped submitting and humbling herself to me as not an equal, but as somebody underneath me, beneath me, somebody who was below me. You didn't anoint my, my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with this costly oil. See, this oil was more significant than, than we really understand. See, it, was, it came in a little flask that had a long neck, and it was sealed on top, and it was not something that you poured out. You actually had to break it to be able to pour it out, and once you broke it, it lost all value. The, the bottle, the flask itself was, was the, the value. It, it let off this fragrance of itself. It was a sign of beauty. It was a sign of, of the resources to be able to purchase such a, a perfume because it cost about that of a year's salary. But that's not why this was significant. That's not really why this is important. And I know we want to go there that she gave up a year's salary for him. That's not why this is important. This oil, just by having it around her neck, automatically made her more attractive to, to the gentleman that she saw. They would smell this, this fragrance and they would see this as someone who has money, who has position, who has something. And they, they, they wanted her. They were more drawn to her. You think about this. She was a prostitute. What does she have to leverage other than her looks? Other than her ability to appeal to men? This is why it's significant. Because she literally laid her entire life and livelihood at his feet. She literally said, I don't care about any of that. I just want you. That is why this oil is significant because she broke it, effectively saying, I no longer have this. It's yours. That is why this is so significant. That is why this is such a big deal that she did this. Jesus points out that her sins were many, but they are forgiven. And because her sins were many they, uh, and, and they were forgiven of many, she began to love him much. This is, he's not trying to say that because she, she showed this great this great showing of love that he forgave her of her sins, that's not what he's saying. He's saying that, that, because, that her, forgiveness, her forgiveness was not because of her worship, but her worship was because of her forgiveness. She poured out this affection. She poured out this, this showing of love upon Jesus because he had forgiven her of so much more than we could even imagine. Friends, that is the key to true worship. 
that we have a right view of ourselves, that we understand that we are not really deserving to be here in his presence, that we are not deserving to even be at the feet of Jesus, but that we have a right view of Jesus, that he is not just a good moral example, that he is not just a good teacher, but that he was the one who paid the debt so that we could come near him. And because of that, because he is the one who paid the debt so that I could come near him, because of that, because of who he is and what he's done, I worship extravagantly. Because when you have a clear picture of who Jesus is and who you are before him simply because of what he has done for you, no worship is too extravagant. No show of emotion is too great. No sacrifice is too big. When we have a clear picture of who Jesus is and who we are before him based on what he has done, we will willingly lay down those things that we desire, those things that we want, those things that we long for for 21 days to say, you know what, I want those, but I want you more. Not because we think we're going to get something from him, but simply because he is worth it. Not because we want to get this reciprocity of I do this for you, you do this for me, but because Jesus has done enough, whether you ever do anything else for me or not, you have done enough. You have done enough for me to pour out all of my affection and all of my emotion. You have done enough. I don't know what that was. I felt it. It's easy to worship this way at the beginning of our faith journey, right? At the beginning, we're raw. We feel all of it. We feel all of the weight of what he did for us because it's new, right? It's fresh. The wound is still kind of open. We feel all of that, and so we, we haven't learned enough to know about being dignified in the house of the Lord, and we haven't learned enough about holding back, and you know, there's, there's order and there's goodness with these things. We have, to cal- we have to calm down a little bit. We're more like the, the, the blind man in John 9 who's like, I don't know about all of that, but what I do know is that I used to be blind, and now I can see. It is because of him. So we don't care because we feel all of this so much more strongly at the beginning. But what is dangerous, what is dangerous is that over time this feeling fades. Over time we do learn more and we learn that we need to be more dignified. And you can't stand on stage and cry all the time, John. (laughs) We lose that emotion. We lose that wonder. We lose that sense of humility that he chose me, that he forgave me, 
that he took my punishment, that he took my sin upon himself so that I don't have to do that. And over time, we find ourselves in the place of Simon here, where this is all normal. This is all common. We, we know that he did this, but we don't feel that he did this. We intellectually grasp the idea that he paid for my sin, but we do not feel the weight of that belief, of that reality. And it becomes normal, and then over time, we allow ourselves somehow to begin to judge other people for their sins, but then we begin to judge God for uh, allowing people to come in, for accepting people to Him, for forgiving people that, that we don't think He should, for Him blessing people that we don't think He should, for God forbid for using people that we don't think He should use. We begin to judge Him, and over time we lose sight who Jesus is. That, that is why, that is why we fast as an act of worship. Because I don't want to ever get to the point where I can stand and talk about the forgiveness of God and do it in a way that I am unmoved by it. I don't ever want to be in the presence of Jesus and be unmoved by it. That is why we fast. Not because we're going to get something from him, but because he has already done enough. Because of who he is. Because of what he's done, I willingly lay down everything else to say that you are all that I really, really want. You are all that I really, really need. I don't want to forget that. I don't want to lose sight of that. Our fasting as an act of worship is simply, uh, it's, it's twofold, really. Honestly, it is, it is reminding God that, hey, I am committed to you. I do love you. I am all in for you. And it is declaring over ourselves, don't forget who he is. I have the privilege of standing in front of all of you and looking in your faces every week when I preach. And I see the longing in some of your eyes. And I'm going to look up so I don't look anybody in the eye and anybody think I'm pointing you out. I see the longing for Jesus in your eye and the hunger in your eyes. And some of you, I see the glaze that you have long since lost the wonder of who Jesus is. And I wish... I wish that we could see who Jesus really is. If we could see who Jesus really is, it would change everything in our lives. It would change everything about who we are simply from knowing who he is. 
That is my heart for all of you, is that we know who Jesus is, and we are overcome by the good news that he chose you. Let's pray. God, I thank you for who you are. I thank you that you did choose me, that you did choose us to be your people. God, I pray that you would cause us today to stand in awe of you once again. God, refresh the view of who you are in our minds this morning. Help us to see the reality of who we are before you, the reality of who you are, and God, help us to respond to that reality appropriately. As Paul says in Romans, that we present our entire beings as a living sacrifice because of who you are and what you've done. God, I thank you so much. In your name we pray, amen and amen. If you have not experienced that moment where you have encountered Jesus and you have met the one who gives peace and gives forgiveness, who gives rest and gives healing. If you have not had that moment, but you realize today that you need that, come talk to me. Come talk to one of our elders. Talk to somebody, and, and we'll, we would love to have a conversation with you. We'd love to walk you through what that looks like for you because you don't have to wait until next week. You don't have to wait until next month. You don't have to try your hardest and you don't have to be better and do all of these things. You simply have to say, Jesus, I need you. And you can do that today. Would you stand with me now and receive this benediction as we go? In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, this is what Paul says, Now to him, Jesus, who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen and amen. Go in peace. We'll see you tonight at 5. No matter